programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Shakespeare Festival, presenting Shakespeare's exploration of mistaken identity, the comedy of errors. Information at bard.org. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today on the program, a couple of very interesting studies. The second half of the program will look at a study showing that minority entrepreneurs face more obstacles to success and deal with rejection differently than their Caucasian counterparts. The study interestingly looks at self-perception and how that's affected, especially at rejection. USU Sterling Bone collaborated with Glenn Christensen from BYU and Jerome Williams from Rutgers. They sent mystery shoppers to banks seeking information about loans. These were minority and Caucasian, and then they interviewed them about how they felt when they were rejected. Uh, their uh, findings were published in the Journal of Consumer Research. Right now, however, we uh, take a look at a phenomenon called the glass cliff. This is the idea that women are more likely to get promoted to leadership positions when a firm is struggling which places them in a precarious position from the start. The glass cliff is back in the news with the recent firing of Jill Abramson as executive editor of the New York Times. Cook and Glass found that merit alone does not give women and minorities the key to the executive suite. We'll get to some of their other uh, findings. And also, interestingly, the, the uh, confirmed that glass cliff theory also applies to minorities, a phenomenon they dubbed the savior effect. Welcome to the program, Chrissy Glass. Uh, Chris Glass is Associate Professor of Sociology, Utah State University. Allison Cook joins us on the line from Southern Utah, Associate Professor uh, in the Huntsman School of uh, Business at Utah State University. Professor Cook, welcome. Thank you, Tom. Happy to be here. So, Christy Glass, uh, did I characterize the glass cliff correctly? Yeah, absolutely. The glass cliff is, is kind of a parallel idea to the glass ceiling. The glass ceiling is the idea that there are invisible barriers that prevent women from being promoted, the glass cliff suggests that when they are promoted, uh, they're more likely to be promoted to organizations or firms in crisis. So they're in some ways set up to fail. Uh, in its in, in essence, pushed off the cliff. Absolutely. Yeah, or at least the cliff is very precarious and they fall off or whatever yeah, it is. Absolutely. Uh, so Professor Cook, um, it, it, in any case, women don't occupy top positions of, of leadership. Um, I, in an NPR piece on this, uh, they mentioned that, uh, you know, quick, name a top uh, CEO who's not Marissa Meyer, <laughs> and I couldn't name anybody. Uh, I guess that illustrates that it's uh, the numbers are few. I, I'm sorry, that of women in CEO positions? Yes, yes. Or that are, or have not been put in the glass cliff position? Uh, just in general, uh, women in CEO positions. Yeah, I mean, we're very few. I mean, women in the Fortune 500 are right now, we're 25, which is 5%, and I believe that's the highest it's ever been, <laughs> which is really sort of a sad statement that it's still only 25 out of 500 CEOs. Uh, so that's that's an indication of the glass ceiling. Mm -hmm. Do we have an idea, Professor Cook, of why that is? Which, you know, you have competent, I'm sure you have competent women who could occupy oh, those positions. Oh. Oh, very, very definitely. I mean, even think about board of directors and, and in the situation of, of Twitter, you know, a while back when Twitter was putting its board together and they only had all men on the on on their board. And people were saying, why, are, why aren't you having any women on your board of directors? And Twitter was sort of fighting back and they were saying, well, we don't have women that are going to add value. And that, that spurred a whole slew of uh, news articles and people coming to the sort of defense saying, look at all these women. You know, there was a professor out of uh, Yale, Jeffrey Sonnenfeld, who immediately said, I can think of 20 women that would add a lot of value to this board. In, in you know, five minutes, I did that. Give me another five minutes, and I'd come up with another 20 women. You know, women are out there. Women are capable. Uh, often it's just that people that are, are in these positions to appoint them to CEO, uh, maybe, maybe they're not within their network, within their frame of thought. Hmm. Professor Glass, is, is that what this is? It's, it's who you know? And yeah, we know, we know that the process of, of promoting a CEO um, is often extremely informal. Uh, the board members often draw on their own social networks. And, of course, what that means is if the board is predominantly white male, uh, the social and professional networks of those folks is going to be disproportionately, is disproportionately going to look like them. Um, 
uh, on the other hand, uh, in, a, in a recent series of studies Allie and I have done, we find that when the board is diverse, women and minorities are actually much more likely to be promoted CEO. And this this really suggests that that diversity begets diversity. That mm-hmm. that when when top decision makers are comprised of of ethnically, racially, and gender diverse individuals, this creates significantly more opportunities for the promotion of women and minorities to the very top positions. Mm-hmm. I want to loop back around to that, just the general case. But let's let's get back to the glass cliff. So, Professor Glass. Um, is something similar going on here? Um, boards are not diverse, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so they're only looking to women if it's a precarious position. Yeah. So, so what we find is not, you know, not considering board diversity. Women are significantly women and minorities are significantly more likely to be promoted CEO when the firm is struggling or in crisis. And there are a couple reasons that this might be true. First, uh, it could be that women and minority CEOs, uh, women and minority candidates are fearful that if they turn this opportunity down, another opportunity might not present itself down, down the road. I mean, there are 5% of these positions have been given to women, right? So, so reasonably, a woman offered a, a risky position, a CEO of a, of a firm in crisis, may fear, like she, may fear that she won't have other opportunities. Similarly, a white male candidate may have the confidence to turn such risky jobs down because he knows another opportunity might come. We also know from experimental research that when people think of the ideal leader, the qualities they define as as the ideal leader are different in healthy firms versus in firms in crisis. In healthy firms, they want someone assertive and 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 bold and aggressive. Uh, when firms are in crisis, the ideal leader is is constructed as warm, as more personable, uh, as more capable of kind of building uh, uh, organizational spirit. So it could be that women stereotypes about women uh, make them more attractive leaders in organizations that are in crisis. Hmm. Professor Cook, uh, stereotypes. I, I think they're still out there. Uh, yes. But I don't know if they're true. You know, as Professor Cook just said, if you're in a crisis, maybe you want somebody warm, consensus building, et cetera, well, et cetera. You know, a, a great example of, of the glass cliff uh, with and a huge success story of the CEO is actually uh, going back to Xerox in 2001 when they appointed Anne Mulcahy as their CEO. And, I mean, here she was a, a journalism and communications major from, from college. She gets she works for CEO her entire life. She starts in sales. She goes through HR. And the board chose her to be CEO at this really trying time because they said uh, there was actually a, a professor out of Harvard, Bill George, who had written about her saying she bled for Xerox and everybody knew it. And they did and had this huge commitment. She went around and they said, you know, they, they knew there would be huge sacrifices to pull Xerox out of their Uh, out of their crisis situation, and they said, we need someone that everyone believes in, that they know that she's doing everything for the best of the organization and she's not self-serving at all. And she went around, and there were stories that she went around to every manager to try to get them on board, and I think all but two agreed with her and, and went through sort of the sacrificial process to bring Xerox back. You know, she finally turned over the reins to another another female, the first black uh, woman CEO, Ursula Burns, in '09. But she had a huge success bringing Xerox back to profitability, um, and and I think a lot of that was what uh, Christy just spoke about on these other qualities. You know, she had this incredible loyalty and and consensus building with with who she was dealing with. So uh, you know, when you bring up stereotypes, yeah, we we. Stereotypes may not always be true. Uh, some may fit different people. I mean, there's a huge, huge discussion about stereotypes that anyone can have. Um, but in, in this case, she really fit uh, some of those qualities that Xerox needed at that time. Hmm. So, Professor Cook, um, when women CEOs fail, you know, falling off the glass cliff, then I think that, that sort of reinforces in some people's mm-hmm. minds well, she failed, so let's get a man next time. Well, and, you know, and this is where we've termed this the savior effect, is that women get put in these positions where they really start at a deficit, and then 
when they don't succeed, then, you know what, let's pull back in that traditional white male leader, and he'll pull us out of the situation. You know, probably one of the most visible firings, uh, I, I think, ever in the Fortune 500 for a woman was Carly Fiorina out of HP and back in uh, 05. You know, they, they brought her in as a very dynamic leader in 1999, and, you know, she did not succeed with HP, even though uh, some of her uh, legacy, I, I think, was debatable at the end how much uh, Mark Kerb, when he came in and replaced her, how much he actually changed or, or still used. Um, but here, her public firing just, again, reinforced that notion, you know, she wasn't up to this job. Uh, another question for you, Professor Cook. Um, where does Mary Barra, or is it Barra? That's an indication. Very I don't even know how to say her last name, but <laughs> but she's the the CEO of General Motors, and General Motors has right. famously been going through some problems recently. Does she fit into this glass cliff scenario? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you think she just started the first of this year, and what a huge! <laughs> I, I think some some of the uh, stories came out that she was finding out about some of these recalls uh, just right before she was appointed, and so to come into this position, uh, you know, and face millions of cars being recalled, I think it's a huge glass cliff. And, you know, she is the leader of the largest, uh, you know, it's the seventh company on the Fortune 500. So she is the female leader that leads the largest company. And so she definitely has that. I know, I know Christy has some ideas also with, with Mary, uh, with regard to her sort of showing a uh, sort of a new face for GM, and maybe she could talk a little bit about that as well. Yeah, uh, encouraging news today that sales are up in the last mm-hmm. quarter for GM. Yeah. Finally, some good news. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what, what do you think? Well, you know, I think uh, clearly Mary Barra is, is a fantastic leader. She's been with the company a long time. She has incredible potential to lead this company out of crisis. The question, given our research, the real question is, is she going to be given the opportunity to see the company through the crisis? Our research shows that when leaders like Mary Barra are promoted off the glass cliff, promoted to companies in crisis, if the company's performance continues to suffer, even in the short term, even in a very short period of time, those leaders are blamed for the crisis and replaced. So my fear with Mary Barra is uh, I think she's capable of seeing the company through the crisis. My fear is she won't be given the opportunity to see the company through the crisis. And then the company can blame her leadership for the crisis and move on uh, mm. by, by promoting a, a, a more traditional uh, leader for the auto industry. Mm. I wonder, uh, I'd like to talk about another couple of uh, specific people. Uh, Marissa Meyer, I made mm-hmm. reference to that. Uh, I think she's maybe the icon, if you think about mm-hmm. a, a female CEO. And and the press I'm reading about her is Yahoo is, you know, kind of precarious, but Marissa Meyer is very well respected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, I think, I think time will tell. Um, Marissa Meyer came in with huge challenges, um, and she's so far proven to be an exceptionally bold leader, um, taking in some cases extremely controversial positions, extremely unpopular positions uh, in the name of growing the company. Again, I think uh, time will tell uh, if, if she's, if she's uh, effective enough uh, that she can avoid the savior effect down the road. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the glass cliff. This is a term that's come back in the news with the firing of Jill Abramson from the New York Times. Uh, And it's uh, the phenomenon that uh, women are more likely to get promoted to leadership positions when a firm is struggling, which places them in a precarious position from the start. Only about 5% of uh, women are uh, CEOs of uh, top companies, so starting from behind anyway. And we're talking with uh, USU professors uh, Allison Cook and uh, Christy Glass. If you would uh, like to join the program, we'd uh, love to have you. It's uh, 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Or you can join us at upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Professor Cook, I wonder if you could uh, address Jill Abramson specifically. When when we read about her firing, this kind of gets us into perceptions and stereotypes of women one word used is difficult, mm-hmm. a, an abrasive management style, which is only a step or two away from bossy or rhymes with which. Mm-hmm. And these are things well, you, you know, hear. It's, it, it's really interesting when you think about this and when you brought up stereotypes before, but we have such sort of entrenched, entrenched uh, gender norms that we have in society. 
And women, I mean, research has shown over and over that women pay a penalty when they don't adhere to those gender norms. So, you know, there are studies that show that, you know, like if uh, you ask a man for help and he turns you down, there's no penalty. If he agrees and helps you, you say, what a great guy. And he gets a sort of a bonus from this. If you ask a woman for help and she turns you down, then she's the term you just described. Um, But if she says yes, she doesn't get any bonus. It's just expected. And I think with Jill Abramson, you're looking at her her management style. So much has been written about her management style in, in the newsroom. And, you know, the question always comes up, if it was a man with the same style, would there be an issue? Because it's expected. It's just because she's sort of uh, contrary to what you would expect. She she was tough. She was an advocate for it. But she was, you know, in there and, and battling things and does not, she did not adhere to those gender norms of nurturing and, you know, being warm and friendly with, with those she's working with. She was tough. She was a tough boss. So I, I do think that that, uh, that definitely plays a role. Professor Glass, what do you think about uh firing of Jill Abramson. Well, I think <clears throat> I think she came in into into this leadership position the first woman uh, uh, to lead to lead the newsroom, uh, and she followed a number of scandals in the in the newsroom for for the nation's flagship paper. She had a lot of work to do to rebuild the reputation and the integrity of, of the paper. There was a plagiarism scandal. Um, there were scandals in terms of the paper's coverage of of U.S. foreign policy. Um, she came in with huge challenges, um, arguably a glass cliff type situation. She was given a very short period of time to turn the paper around. And in fact, in the months leading up to her firing, uh, the head of the paper commissioned a study uh, by his son about the status of the digital offerings by the paper, which has been uh, a source of major concern at the New York Times. And the report came back that the paper was in crisis. So I think Jill Abramson's firing may actually be a classic example of the savior effect. Mm-hmm. She was brought in, in in a very challenging situation, and there was still a perception that the paper was in crisis, and she was replaced. Mm-hmm. She was replaced uh, by a man who was extremely well-liked and very well-respected and had a long history with the paper. And then she was blamed for some of those crises yeah. that pre-existed her, her entrance into the position. Interestingly, she was replaced by an African-American gentleman. Right. Which is right. Well, we'll get into some of those issues in the next half hour. Um, you you can empathize with her, and this sort of, uh, she's a good illustration, I guess, with the after effects of the glass cliff. Her, her speech to Wake Forest mm-hmm. says, like you, graduates, I don't know what I'm doing next. Right, sure. That's that's one of the things that makes these glass cliff positions so risky for women, because they're not given enough time to demonstrate their leadership capability. They're they're usually quickly replaced uh, by traditional white men leaders, and they're blamed. So good luck getting another top leadership position. When and, and the other thing about these uh, high rank high ranking women leaders is because they're so rare, they're highly visible. We all know about Jill Abramson. Would we be talking as much about Jill Abramson if it were Joe Abramson? Right. She's highly visible because she's so unique. She's she's the only woman to ever hold that position. So we're all watching her. And her failure is ex- exaggerated because of the scrutiny and, and the publicity around it. Yeah. Um, you know, I think Jill Abramson will have a very difficult time getting any comparable position after this. Hmm. Yeah, I, I could see that. That that would be the case. Uh, Professor Cook, um, based on, on your research, what's the solution? The, the the you know sort of the the entrenched uh, you know you've you've looked at this and uh, uh, women are more likely to be put in these positions or choose precarious positions uh, so so how do we fix this? You know I, I believe and, and this actually leads to some of our more recent research in looking at the the composition of the governing bodies of the board of directors and such just how important it is for organizations to make sure they have diversity both racial and gender diversity on their board of directors. On those, uh, on those decision-making uh, processes that they have this, these different perspectives, this different input. Uh, you know, when you have, all of a sudden when you have these different minds coming to, together and these different perspectives, not only does your network increase, but it also, and, and I, I think Christy could probably speak a little bit more to this, it sort of breaks down that notion that the stereotypes you brought up earlier breaks down the idea that you view people in a certain way. The more exposed you are to people different from you, more likely you're not to see them as, as so different. Mm. 
So if you have a more diverse board of directors, they'll be making decisions differently. Sure. And and we know that our reach our research suggests very clearly that when organizations have diverse boards of directors, women and minorities are more likely to be promoted regardless of firm performance. They're given a longer tenure in the leadership position and they're protected from the savior effect. So all of these negative um, uh, leadership phenomenon that we've studied, um, a diverse board of directors really protects leaders from that. And and it, you know I, I, we know from previous research that the more interdependent individuals are on each other, the less likely they are to hold stereotypes. Um, the more exposure individuals have to, to people uh, of different races, ethnicities, or genders, the weaker their stereotypes. So that by creating a critical mass of leadership teams that include diverse individuals, we're going to reduce bias and stereotypes and, and increase the opportunities for others. Uh, you know, diversity begets diversity in this sense. Hmm. We had a listener send in a couple of uh, websites. Interesting. Uh, this gets us into perceptions that girls have of themselves, especially when they think of themselves as leaders. One of these, a very interesting site, is called bandbossy.com. On the front page, it has a little girl. uh, It says, when a little boy asserts himself, he's called a leader. Yet when a little girl does the same, she risks being branded bossy. Words like bossy send a message. Don't raise your hand or speak up. And by middle school, girls are less interested in leading than boys, a trend that continues into adulthood. Together, we can encourage girls to lead. Uh, So I wonder, uh, Professor Cook, what what do you think about that? It starts early. Well, I think that's, that's exactly exactly the case. You know, I mean, Sheryl Sandberg, of course, has her famous book, Lean In, and it talks just about that and how, you know, she was called boss as a, as a child and, you know, and she would pull herself back from those leadership positions. And, you know, that, that's exactly what was happening. And so, you know, girls don't assert themselves. They don't, you know, they, they don't want to take over class discussions. They don't want to do a lot of these things. And it just sort of builds upon itself. It, it's one of the, you know, barriers that probably limits women getting to these top positions is some of their uh, own hesitancies. I know there was another article just published in the Atlantic on the confidence gap with women and men. And so there are a lot of issues going into it. And, and probably, you know, one thing you can look at sort of the structural barriers on the organization, and you can look at the sort of the individual barriers that occur from the, the women or the girls themselves, too. And, you know, you hate to ever say it's, it's the girl's fault or the woman's fault, but you can think you can come at it from both sides. You know, try to, you know, we, we need to change our, our view where we're wanting women to be assertive. We want them to. We want them to stand up and, and be confident in what they're doing and saying and, we, you know, and to get away from calling them bossy. Um, but in the meantime, they also, we need to take that step in. You know, I think that was that, that lean-in version. Professor Glass, uh, there's another site that this listener sent in, she's so boss.com. Mm-hmm. This one seems to target uh, young women in, in their you know 20s and, and such and trying to encourage them to think of themselves as leaders. Mm-hmm. I think that's fantastic. You know, I think um, you know, I think as Ali said, I think part of the solution has to do with encouraging girls and young women uh, to take on leadership positions and to learn those skills. Leadership involves skills. And, and, and those skills need to be learned and taught and, and practiced. But, but I also think the larger issue is are, are the penalties those girls and young women and eventually grown women face uh, by displaying the same leadership characteristics as men. Um, if we continue to penalize women for displaying those characteristics that in men we see as part of the ideal leader package, uh, we're going to systematically discourage women uh, from entering into those positions and from succeeding in those positions. Um, there's, there's research that especially white women who show those kinds of assertive, aggressive, competitive behaviors we associate with leaders uh, pay significant penalties in terms of promotion chances. So, so we can encourage them all we want to be aggressive and assertive and competitive, but it may be those very same displays that limit their ability to get those top positions. So that suggests to me that what we need to change are larger social perceptions that are deeply gendered. Hmm. We just have a couple of minutes left. Uh, Professor Cook, I wonder how we go about doing what Professor Glass just said, changing those perceptions and those practices. Oh, I wish I knew. <laughs> 
Wow, I, I think Christy better better talk about that one. Okay, She's got some ideas to change societal perceptions. Yeah, you know, interestingly, a lot of these biases are non-conscious and they're automatic. So we can't point and say, see, that guy's a sexist. Get rid of him and and, and the problem solved. A lot of us have these same uh, biases and, and they're non-conscious. Even when people reject, consciously reject certain kinds of sexist attitudes, they may automatically um, uh, practice uh, those biases. So we know that there are some things we can do to limit non-conscious bias, limit uh, uh, these automatic biases. First of all, when we're hiring, we can rely on more objective as opposed to more subjective criteria. There's a famous study uh, of an orchestra that wasn't hiring women, even though lots of women were trying out. they did an experiment where they held the auditions blind. They didn't know. They could just hear the music. They didn't know uh, who was playing. Suddenly, the number of women being hired skyrocketed. Mm-hmm. So the more subjective, or I'm sorry, the more objective we can make the hiring process, the more formal we can make the hiring process. And importantly, when decision makers know they're going to be held accountable, when they're going to have to justify why this candidate instead of that candidate, Uh, they're less likely to rely on bias. Mm. And finally, when decision makers are given time, uh, when when decision makers feel rushed, they're more likely to rely on non-conscious biases than when they're given ample time to evaluate a variety of different information and then held accountable for their analysis of that information. We know under all those conditions, bias goes down. Mm. So I think one of the things we need to do is think really seriously about how decisions are made in organizations and how we can uh, transform those processes in ways that will reduce bias. Finally, Professor Cook, uh, I wonder if you'd put on your prediction hat. (laughs) Um, Do you think we're going to break through that 5%? And is it going to take, of women CEOs, is it going to take Mary Barra succeeding and and, uh, Marissa Meyer succeeding or, or, or things going to be changed institutionally? Oh, I think we will. But I, I think we're we have such extraordinary women leaders out there, and we're going to break through that number. Um, you know, yeah. I, will Mary Barra succeed? I, I hope so. And I, you know, that will make a difference. I mean, every female success makes a difference, of course, uh, because it changed some changes some of those views. Uh, but we will break through there. We have some amazing people in the in the Fortune 500 and Fortune 1000 companies, and, and some really great leaders, extraordinary extraordinary women. We'll leave it there uh, for this half of the program. We've been talking about the Glass Cliff, which is uh, back in the news with the firing of Jill Abramson as executive editor of the New York Times. And uh, two USU professors have studied this. Uh, USU Associate Professor of Sociology, Allison, or Christy Glass, who's been with us in the studio. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And Allison Cook, who is uh, Associate Professor in the USU Huntsman School of Business. Thank you so much. Thank you. Coming up, we're going to talk about a study showing that minority entrepreneurs face more obstacles to success and deal with rejection differently than their Caucasian counterparts. That subject following a break. This is Steve Tracy, bringing more to life. For the first time, adult couples have more parents than children. How do you prepare for this new role? Communication is key to success in any job. The role of caretaker is no exception. Begin with your parents' wishes. Talk to them about personal goals, housing, legal, financial, and medical decisions. Some of these conversations may be easy. Some will be difficult. Start the conversation now to bring more to their lives. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Sunshine Terrace Foundation in Logan. Advancing wellness, independence, dignity, and comfort. Information at sunshineterrace.com. Hi, it's Lynn Rosetto-Casper. This week, we look at the latest wave in sustainability, GOAT, with locavore chef Jesse Griffiths, and we get some surprising news about the family dinner table from Bruce Feiler, the author of The Secrets of Happy Families. Join us. That's The Splendid Table from APM. Tuesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Body Worlds, Animal Inside Out, the new exhibition, 
now with the Leonardo in downtown Salt Lake City. From goats to giraffes, bulls to birds, octopi to ostriches, visitors will discover the form and function of animals, both exotic and familiar, at Animal Inside Out. Information at theleonardo.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We move now to minority entrepreneurs. A recent study showed that minority entrepreneurs face more obstacles to success and deal with rejection differently than their Caucasian counterparts. We welcome to the studio from Utah State University uh, Assistant Professor uh, Sterling Bone from the USU Huntsman School of Business. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. In studio as well is... uh, uh, Glenn Christensen, who's Garrett Research Fellow and Associate Professor of Marketing at the Marriott uh, School of Management at Brigham Young University. Thanks for joining us. So kind of you to have us. And uh, thanks for driving up. It's great to be here. Yeah. It's uh, a beautiful be- drive. Beautiful Cache Valley. So, it is yes, beautiful. Never a, never a bad thing. Um, Jerome Williams is the Prudential Chair of Business and Research Director of the Center of Urban Entrepreneurship and Economic Development at Rutgers University. He joins us on the telephone. Welcome. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So, Professor Bone, I wonder if you could uh, tell us uh, in brief what uh, what the study was. I think you sent so-called mystery shoppers into shop for loans. That's that was one of the prongs of this study. Yes. What we were interested is, is in is understanding the different experiences that entrepreneurs have, and we found that entrepreneurs, you know, whether they be minority or not minority, have. Uh, you know, a, a journey, a difficult journey. But we found, surprisingly and dishearteningly, we found that minorities have a much different experience as they go into banks, um, inquiring about information about a small business loan. And we found that they receive inferior information. They are treated with less, um, you know, common courtesy and given less encouragement. And uh, they just have a very remarkably different journey, um, different experience. So you proved this by sending in these, uh, I think, the small business owners, right? Yeah, so we recruited small business owners in a major metropolitan area, and they went in with essentially the same loan request. And we, we had uh, African-American, Hispanic, and white business owners go in, and we compared the experiences of these different groups to see how, the, how their experiences differed and um, observed not just from what they perceived, but what they, what they actually received in terms of treatment in the banks. Professor Williams, uh, I think you, you found that, as Professor Bunn was saying, that the minority mystery shoppers for loans were definitely treated differently. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, not only were they uh, treated differently in terms of the uh, way that they were greeted and uh, the type of information that they received, but uh, even in requesting for how many years of uh, t- tax information regarding their businesses and operating. So there was definitely a disparity there. And uh, as Professor Bone has pointed out, uh, uh, we were somewhat uh, surprised and and also alarmed that this is still continuing uh, in this day and age. And so I suppose, I don't know if you did a, you know, it's a control part of this, or, or, but if you would have done this over the phone, if people couldn't have seen who they're dealing with, it may well have been different. Well, if you if you have a situation where you don't know uh, what the background, the racial ethnic background of the person is, then you would hope that everyone would be treated uh, the same. But the fact of the matter is, people do go into banks, and even the characteristic of what person's uh, race is is a salient characteristic. That really shouldn't matter, even in face-to-face situations. And but it is mattering, and so that's an area of concern. Professor Christensen, uh, a very interesting part of this study. You then asked these people who applied for loans how they felt, right? And this gets into perception of themselves. Absolutely. And that that was a second follow-up study to this original Mystery Shopper study. And that's where we got into the lived experience of this, the phenomenology, if you will, of going through the process of applying and seeking financing for your small business venture. And that was a difficult journey for for these minority respondents, they felt um, rather powerless. They brought in pictures to represent some of these thoughts and feelings, and these pictures were s- systematically oriented from the bottom looking up. And that was organic. They, we didn't ask them for that. We just asked them to bring in these visual metaphors to describe their thoughts and feelings. And they always oriented it from the bottom looking up, like trying to climb Mount Everest. And as a matter of fact, one quote said, "I." It's, a, it's like an impossible journey. Nobody can do it. Nobody I know has done it. And, uh, and it was always this 
this Herculean effort. One respondent said, my very favorite in the he said in the Hispanic community, the our favorite superhero is Spider-Man because he can climb um, impossible vertical um, surfaces. And, and it represented this deeper feeling of powerlessness, lack of e- efficacy in the moment. And, um, and it translated to dramatic hits in their self-esteem, self-confidence. And they described these remarkable dysphoric outcomes, negative emotional outcomes that come in the wake of banging up against these barriers again and again and again, and the deleterious effects that those created for who they were as human beings, not just as minority entrepreneurs or any kind of entrepreneur. But And um, another interesting thing that came out of that was, for them, race was always relevant to them. They thought about it all the time. And our our majority respondents, our white respondents, they never talked about race. It mm. was completely invisible to them. They never thought about what their skin tone happened to be or their ethnic background happened to be. But our minority respondents, it was constantly on their minds. So it's interesting. We have stereotypes outside, and we have we have these perceptions of self, which is which are which are taking a hit and causing stress for people inside. Professor Bone. Uh, this is this distresses us. I think as Americans, we like to we like to we hope always that we're going to hit some point that we're going to have in, in a post racial mm-hmm. uh, America. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but looks like we're not. <laughs> yeah, we haven't reached yeah. it. Yeah, that's what's uh, you know concerning as we have, have done this work. And again, you know, you know, so that, you know, your listeners uh, you know, I am of the white majority, and so for me to have this experience, you know, growing up in in, in a white neighborhood, if you will, to ha- see how different these individuals are, you know, experiencing the world, is quite you know disturbing for me as as a human being, mm-hmm. right? This is very human research. Uh, we're all interested in, in, uh, in, in trying to, to improve, I believe, you know, as, as a society, um, you know, improve the, the quality of life for all individuals. And what was so, so disturbing for me is that, that they go in these experiences with banks with a whole different set of choices that they have to make than that I don't have to make. They're thinking about what they have to wear, how they need to look, you know, whether they need to bring a white partner with them so that they be, appear to be, quote unquote, more legitimate. And some of our individual individual respondents talked you know, about that, you know, that they 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 hired, you know, white assistants to go into the bank and 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 make their deposits for them so they could build you know a little bit more trust with the bank or they hired uh, um, you know you know individuals to go in and, and uh, that had maybe a better you know proficiency with the language of you know to, to be able to come across as more um, you know quote unquote legitimate um, and so yeah it's 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 a disturbing um, matter that these individuals have to make so different choices and they see the world um, through a different lens than than the white majority. Professor Williams, I wonder if you could uh, follow up with something Professor Christensen said, and this reminds me, and I've heard this from from uh, you know black friends. That's something I don't have to I don't have to carry I don't carry this around as a white person. Um, but I guess as a minority, you're you're thinking about race all the time, and how do I negotiate society? Yeah, well, it, it's yeah, it's certainly something that's that's prevalent on the person's mind who comes from an underrepresented backgrounds such as African-American or Hispanic, and, I, and I'm African-American, and I've experienced that. And, uh, and if you're not from that particular group, it's, sometimes it's hard to understand how a person can carry this around. But, you know, we've asked the question in uh, other research where, do you think people from African-American or Hispanic backgrounds are treated differently when they go into a bank or they go into a retail store? And uh, what we get back is that whites will say average uh, 25 uh, 30% of whites will say, uh, no, that doesn't, I mean, or they'll say that people are treated fairly, everyone, regard, race doesn't matter. Uh, but if you ask African Americans and Hispanics, usually it's about 80 or 90% will say that race does matter. So you get this huge disparity. And so a lot of times people from the majority background don't understand what we mean by this term, what we call white privilege, that just by being of a certain background, uh, there's an automatic perception that the person uh, is more qualified. And this may be whether you're applying for a loan or whether they're waiting to be waited on uh, as a customer, and this happens uh, all the time. So it, it does make a difference, and you, we would hope that, that we've reached 
beyond that, as you've mentioned, in a post-racial society, but uh, we still see evidence of it, not only on the consumer side, but now as this current study shows, even in the banking side, when you're a business, and you would think that the only color that does matter is green, but in fact, uh, a person's racial ethnic background does come into play. Professor Williams, just to follow up, um, sometimes when I'm having these discussions, I hear impatience I made reference to that early in the program. On the part, and it's always the majority, it's always white people, impatience of can't we finally get past this? But, yeah. of course, we're, we're not experiencing the things that the minorities are experiencing. And, and that's, that's the key. If, if you're not from that uh, particular background uh, of an underrepresented uh, group or an oppressed group, you, you don't see this, and uh, it's not as prevalent. I mean, I give you some typical examples of what I have labeled as white privilege. And these are studies from the literature. Uh, if you send out uh, resumes uh, to people for jobs, people are applying for jobs, uh, once the person is identified uh, as coming from a minority background, they don't get the same percentage of uh, callbacks. Or if you put certain things on the resume, uh, we found evidence where a person from an underrepresented background uh, without a criminal record will give fewer callbacks than a person from the majority population with a criminal record. So these, sometimes uh, we wouldn't necessarily be overt uh, racism. Sometimes it's implicit attitudes. But the one thing we do know is that we are not past a post-racial society. And that's really the goal where we'd like to get, where we wouldn't need to be having these kinds of discussions and conducting this kind of research. But uh, over years and years of doing this kind of work, uh, I, I can say based on my experience, uh, not only as a person from the African-American community, but based on the research that we've done, we're still a long ways from that. Mm. If you just joined us, we're talking about a study, a recent study out showing that minority entrepreneurs face more obstacles to success and deal with rejection differently than their Caucasian counterparts. We're talking with Sterling Bone from USU, Glenn Christensen from BYU, and Jerome Williams from Rutgers. If you'd like to join the conversation, a couple of ways you can do that. You can call us at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or you can reach us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Professor Christensen, I wonder if you'd follow up on something uh, Professor Williams said, and it's, I guess maybe we have more idealism when it comes to entrepreneurship. People, you know, starting a business that, you know, the, the only color that should matter is green. I think we think of that as anybody can, can you know, pull themselves up by their bootstraps uh, with a spirit of entrepreneurship. And, and your study here, the results are kind of going against that. Yes, unfortunately, yeah, that's true. It was interesting in this study, every time we got results that were good for our study, for interesting findings that might be publishable, it was uh, a double-edged sword because it also meant things were not good for society. And that, because uh, hopefully, if we did this study in a post-racial society, as you described, that there would be null findings. There just wouldn't be anything, to anything that, that we could talk about. And that would be the ideal. As far as entrepreneurship goes, we live in a country that uh, embraces an American dream, that em- embraces a super narrative of um, freedom of choice in nearly any context. And in, in fact, most of the research as we reviewed it preparing this study was that most of the papers would assume that people were free agents, uh, able, able to choose um, according to their individual predilections and capacities. Uh, uh, in a cornucopia opportunity of, of different things. And what we found for the entrepreneurs, and they embrace that American dream, that narrative, like at a deep level, because they seek this sense of control, this sense of freedom. And in America, freedom is our mantra. And, um, and the ability to choose is the way we see freedom. That is what freedom means for us. And so if if you want, and then if you're an entrepreneur, you want that so deeply, and then you go keep butting up against the restrictions on that ability to choose again and again and again, and it's debilitating. And to, to follow on to something um, Professor Williams talked about, um, that entrepreneur, the minority entrepreneur who gets rejected because it's not overt, because it's, because it's subtle, it leaves that 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 uh, entrepreneur in a quandary. Am I rejected because I was lacking? Am I rejected because society rejected me? 
and you can't you can't answer that question definitively and those and i think that's what a part of what feeds into the difficulty that our minor, minority entrepreneur respondents described so eloquently and leads some of them to so these the ultimate dysphoric outcome of c- considering suicide some of them talked about that wow. that they had uh, that i i just i butt up against it again and again and again and said maybe i should just end my life and he said this respondent said i had friends who actually did and uh, so it was it's 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 more than just i'm not so I don't feel so good today. It's much richer and much deeper than that. Yeah. We just have about five minutes left in the conversation. I, w- I want to go around our panel uh, looking at uh, solutions. Professor Bone, how do we No, it's great. Uh, how do we solve this? You know, with this type of research, obviously, um, you know, as we've approached it, is we, we want to be a part of the solution, not, you know, you know, growing the problem um, in terms of the you know the divide that that might be in society regarding race, and we hope that this work pr- provides greater awareness. I mean, you know, it's difficult to legislate and enforce these type of you know unconscious you know you know covert type acts of discrimination, and instead we need to really build awareness at the grassroots level in the individual you know, themselves and their families and their communities at large. I hope this opens up a narrative for uh, uh, minority uh, chambers of commerce to, to partner with uh, other chambers of commerce to, to look for ways that, that these individuals don't have to go this road alone. And that was some of the deep themes of what we found in our, in our research is that, that these individuals feel very lonely and, you know, and they have those, that depression, that suicidal contemplation. They feel alone. And if we could, you know, build more bridges between the minority and non-minority business communities so that we don't separate these individuals into associations and into communities, but actually provide, providing opportunities for them to, to cross-pollinate across the, 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 the communities would be a great way of trying to build better equity and fairness in the business community. Professor Williams, what are, what are your thoughts on uh, solutions? Yeah, I, I think it's very important for businesses to understand that our research is not designed to vilify and demonize them. It's really designed to help them. Uh, the, the issue becomes, though, are they willing to take steps to recognize that there is a problem and not uh, stick uh, the hair to, head in the stand, so to, head in the sand, so to speak? I think that's where we can come in because we have worked with companies. And we have worked with the industry, and we're there not only to point out the problem, but we're there to offer uh, solutions. But companies have to be able to get out of a denial stage, because sometimes what I see uh, as I've approached certain companies, the, the initial response is, oh, that, that doesn't happen here. Uh, you know, we have certain policies in effect and certain things in place to prevent that kind of thing. But the fact of the matter is, I, I've worked with some of these same companies when we actually do these uh, hidden camera studies or, or uh, testers, we send them out and we identify that these things are indeed happening and people and the management may not be aware of it. And so then the important thing is, are they willing to take the steps to rectify uh, this problem? Just about a minute uh, left. Give you the last word, Professor Christensen. Well, I love having the last word. The last word here for me is, um, is just awareness. I think that uh, Growing up, um, like Dr. Bone, uh, white and in the majority, middle class, this, the revelation here was that there are different lives that are lived. There are different lenses through which you experience the world. And if you can recognize that, and that is absolutely the first and um, imperative step to rectifying that and to making the, the lenses we look through uh, colorless. And, uh, and if we can get to that point, even make strides towards that point, the, this didn't end in the 60s with, the, um, with all the, oh, the foment of that time. And we need to create maybe a little bit more foment in our in culture around these issues and sustain it today. The study was recently published in the Journal of Consumer Research, showed that minority entrepreneurs face more obstacles to success and deal with rejection differently than their Caucasian counterparts. And we've been speaking with uh, Glenn Christensen, Garrett Research Fellow and Associate Professor of Marketing at the Marriott School of Management at BYU. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. We've been talking with Jerome Williams, Prudential Chair in Business and Research Director of the Center of Urban Entrepreneurship and Economic Development at Rutgers University. Thank you so much. Thank you very much Sterling for having Bone. me. Sterling Bone is assistant professor in the Huntsman School of Business at uh, Utah State University. Thank you. It's our honor. Thank you. 
Coming up tomorrow, we're going to uh, be talking about uh, effects uh, of the oil and gas boom on certain towns. One of those, of course, the U.N. Basin, Vernal, Roosevelt. In fact, uh, we have as our gu- one of our guests is a therapist out in Vernal. He says business is booming in his business. We'll talk about oil and gas booms tomorrow in the program. Thanks for listening today. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3, with a changing menu including an adobo marinated chicken panini with cilantro pesto, daikon sprouts, and provolone cheese. Deseret News columnist Steve Eaton. I'm out of time. I have too many urgent things on my to-do list. Too many things that have to be done right now. I saw a Twilight Zone episode once where a woman discovers a gold pendant in her garden and puts it on, not knowing that she is in an episode of the Twilight Zone. Her life is busy, out of control, and loud. At one point, she gets so frustrated with the multiple demands on her by her family and the noise all about her that she shouts, Shut up! And everything freezes. Her kids and her husband suddenly stop talking mid-sentence. At first, of course, she's startled, but she discovers time restarts again as soon as she says, start talking. She decides this is a very cool thing and takes the stopping time frequently as she goes through her normal routine. Because many of the Twilight Zone episodes are based on real things that have actually happened in Washington, D.C., I started wondering how I could take advantage of such time-stopping power. I even considered working in the garden in hopes of finding a golden pennant, but I couldn't find the time to do it. I'm just a tiny bit overweight. What if I froze time just long enough for me to lose 350 pounds? One day, I'd come to work looking like Chris Farley, and the next day, I'd stroll in looking like Rocky Balboa, just after he finished one of his training montages. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, forget self-improvement. What could I do to make the presidential campaign more interesting? Well, personally, I would choose at first to do very subtle things, like add a bozo the clown nose to a candidate just before a major address. Can you imagine what the Secret Service would do if suddenly a red nose appeared on President Obama's face just seconds before a live broadcast? Would they knock him down, pull off the red nose, and shoot it? Imagine the president being hustled away while four or five guys blast away at a plastic red nose on the ground with their machine guns. Or... I could sabotage a conservative Republican chances of winning the nomination by stopping time and putting a button on him or her that says, think win-win. No matter what the candidate said after that, there would always be fear that, if elected, he or she would search for win-win solutions that would benefit the entire country. That could ruin a presidential campaign for sure. If I were really ambitious, I could sneak into a church and replace all the hymn books with new ones featuring lyrics written by me. We all are jerks who hate to work, and we wear rubber shorts. I suppose there are already more than a few of you who are arguing right now that clearly I don't have a shortage of time, but instead, much too much time on my hands. Laugh if you want, but next time you notice that the presidential candidates are saying some really funny and odd things, you might ask yourself, has Steve been gardening lately? If I get lucky in the garden, I predict there will be some startled campaign speechwriters out there, and I think we'll all be enjoying the show more than usual. Someone should warn the British that the British are coming. This is Steve Eaton. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.